So may the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So that speech where Martin Luther King talked about being on the mountaintop, standing with Moses looking across onto the promised land, was given on April the 3rd, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee. He was shot dead the next day. He, like Moses in our first reading, had been to the mountaintop and he had seen the promised land. But he, like Moses, was not to get there. So what was the promised land? Nine and a half years ago, I went on a retreat with then not Bishop Justin Duckworth. He became a bishop a little bit later than that. Uh, and then again in my first year in this parish, he was, uh, Justin was invited to come back and run the same retreat for the clergy of this diocese. And the first time I went, I was feeling pretty despondent. After 30 years, more than 30 years of youth ministry involvement in parish, regional, diocesan, provincial and international levels, I'd watched our church fail to give young people space, fail to help young people to feel like they belonged, fail to give young people a voice in the life of the church, fail to offer many resources, the resources that we have for their life of faith. And the result was... Well, an ageing, tired church. Now a little bit more older and a little bit more tired. So I went feeling despondent and tired. But in that retreat I found hope. Justin used the story that we have been listening to for the last few weeks. The story of the people of God who were brought out of slavery in Egypt and then through the wilderness experience through to today, where Moses stood on the mountaintop looking across into the promised land. Justin used that story to help us explore our experience of church over the last 50 or so years. He helped us think about how we had been in Egypt, and Egypt felt like a good place. It was a place where we had lots of people, we had a place in our society, our voice was listened to. It felt like a good place, but it was also a dangerous place. We had become too comfortable, too complacent, too reliant on thinking that all we had to do was run a better service, have a better sermon, run a better program, and people would come to church. We had begun to believe that the point of church was to get people to come to church. But like the freed slaves who became the Hebrew people, Israel, the people of God, we have been freed from Egypt. Although, to be fair, mostly we don't ever think about it as being freed from Egypt. Because we, like those slaves who lived in the wilderness, constantly look back to what those good days were like. And we long to go back there, as those freed slaves did then and throughout their history. As a slight aside, even their hope for the Messiah was to restore the kingdom of David. And one of the criticisms of the kingdom of David, and particularly his son Solomon, was that they reinstated all the things that Egypt, they had been freed from in Egypt. 
high taxes, slavery, to build big monuments in Jerusalem. They had returned to Egypt. And so even the promised land, as far as they were concerned in the time of Jesus, was in essence to go back to Egypt. I think that's what that little little bit at the end of our Gospel was about. Jesus saying, we're not going back. We're doing something different. So like those freed slaves, we constantly look back. But we can't go back. We are now in the wilderness, which is an uncomfortable place, sometimes a hard place. But it's also a gift, because it's the wilderness experience that shaped those people into being the people of God. Without that wilderness, that generation in the wilderness, there is no Israel. There is no Hebrew people. Because it's in the wilderness, that generation in the wilderness, where they learned the character of God who had rescued them. The God who was faithful and steadfast, who led them and accompanied them, who fed them with manna and quail, and who taught them through law, the Torah, how to live in response to God's generosity and compassion, how to live in response to God's steadfastness, how to live with God's ongoing presence in their midst. And it's the same for us. This time of wilderness is a time for us to be reminded again that God is steadfast, that God is faithful, that God leads and accompanies us, that God continues to feed and sustain us. We are reminded again as the people of God how to live in response to God's generosity and compassion, how to live in response to God's steadfastness, how to live with God's ongoing presence in our midst. My three questions, whose are we, who are we, and what is ours to do, come out of this retreat and come out of this wilderness experience. The retreat finished by inviting us to stand on the mountaintop with Moses and with Martin Luther King, to look out over the promised land, and invited us to describe what that promised land looked like. To understand where it was that we wanted to get to. Where we were being invited to journey to. So I wonder if you were to join Moses or Martin Luther King on that mountaintop. What would the promised land look like for you? I'm going to invite you to have a conversation about that in a second. But I want to offer a word of warning. Don't look back. Don't describe church as it was. That's gone. That was Egypt. We're in the wilderness and we're travelling to the promised land. What does the promised land look like for you? Have a conversation for a minute or two.
Does anyone have anything they'd like to offer to everyone? Any thoughts? Who do we look to That's a good question. You got an answer to that? Ourselves. What was the question? Ourselves. Uh, who do we look to to lead us? So, to find other ways of being God's people in the world, and that's certainly um, at the heart of the of the vestry plan about how do we live that out. And there are things in the notice sheet about that. How do we how do we engage with that? So, gathering as the people of God is still important. I don't think many of us would disagree with that, but it's what we do the rest of the time that's important. And what our what it is that we gather for. I think that's a question that we need to hold before us. Any other thoughts? Well, we talked about the interfaith meeting with your children two, two weeks ago. Yeah. And how we should love all, all faiths because they love, all, they love us. Right. And we just have, we have to accept that and, and grow through that. Yes. Well, as chairperson of the Interfaith Council, I would agree with that. <laughs> I'd just like to say that for a year, um, I've belong to the um, Quakers in Hamilton. Right. And and they don't have a church. We were just meeting in the university um, wasn't it the chapel, it was one of the rooms. Okay. And and they manage they manage without all the trappings and adornments and Yep. And everything. Any other thoughts? It's just a different thing, but who called that? Ah, 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 Mr. King. Uh, Earl Ray Jones. Oh, although there are lots of conspiracy theories about that. He confessed to it, and then uh, after he was found guilty, he retracted his confession and fought to uh, have his name cleared. Uh, well, he had a lot of death threats, and he'd already been stabbed in his chest once. And in fact, there's a talk with... If you go on the internet, there's a little talk with him talking about if he had sneezed, he would have died. Somebody stabbed him with a pen, and it was sitting against his aorta. Oh, and uh, if he had sneezed, it would have pierced his aorta, and he would have bled to death. So that was in about 1960. So, I mean, he knew because of what he was doing, there are a lot of people out to get him. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got him. Again, it's a good, that's a very good answer. The promised land is here and we need to look after it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm Thank you. 
That's a really important thing. So one of the things we do is try to offer this place as a sacred place for all kinds of events, but also during the week in the morning. Um, but it is an ongoing issue. How do we provide sacred place spaces for people to be uh, as individuals, but also as communities? Um, and that's partly what next week is about, next, next Sunday's service. So uh, one of the things that Justin invited us to think about was... Uh, around the resources that we have brought out of Egypt and carry with us into the wilderness. And one of those resources is scripture, especially the story of Jesus. And I want to suggest that for Jesus, the promised land was the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God. And in Matthew's gospel, he describes the kingdom of heaven in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And we can see that the rest of that sermon, as I've said before, the rest of that gospel is then uh, how he lives out that vision of the promised land. So the promised land in Matthew's gospel, at least, is a world where the most important people are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for God's justice, the pure in heart, the merciful, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for the sake of God's justice. The promised land is a world where all flourish, where the common good is held as paramount, a world where the needs of the poor are placed first, where all are treated with honour and respect, including all our brothers and sisters in creation, and are given what they need to thrive. And I think we can see that at work in today's Gospel reading, which was the last of the verbal battles between Jesus and a kind of line-up of Jewish leaders who had come to belittle him and discredit him, to strip him of his honour and influence and restore their own position. Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey and then he'd gone straight to the temple and overturned the the money changers' tables. And he'd returned the next day to teach. And this line-up of leaders then came to question him and to do battle with him. And each time Jesus had bested them, showing up their own lack of authority, even if some of them held all the power. So this is the last question, and it is the question, which is the greatest commandment? And sometimes you might think what a clever answer Jesus gives, but actually he just gives a really bog-standard answer. He wasn't the first rabbi that gives that answer. He's not the last rabbi to give this answer. It is a very common answer. But I think he gives it with a twist, and it's a twist we often miss. So the first part of his answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, comes from the Shema, which is taken from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. It is part of a prayer that is said by Jews every morning and every night. It is the heart of their faith. It is the most important prayer in Judaism. And any rabbi that's asked what is the greatest commandment will give that answer. The question then is, how do you love God? I mean, amongst Christians, we'd say that's the most important answer. But where we come to grief is, how do we love God? 
And so for that lineup of people who had come to see Jesus, that's what divided them. So the first group was the chief priests and the Jerusalem elite. And for the chief priests, where you love God by observing the temple cult. And for that whole leadership group, you love God by preserving the Jewish nation and saving it from the threat of Rome. And you do that by keeping Rome happy. So part of the story of Jesus' death is they are loving God by having him killed to keep Rome happy. The next group that come are the Herodians and the Pharisees. I've got to say that I find it very unlikely that the Herodians and the Pharisees would have come together. They are polar opposites. So Herodians, these are the people that went to Herod Antipas's birthday party where John the Baptist was beheaded. For them, loving God was way down the agenda. Their great love was Greek culture. The culture that was brought by Alexander the Great and his armies 300 years earlier. And they were deeply influenced by Greek culture, Greek thinking, Greek ways of living and behaving. And being a Jew was kind of a sideline thing, really. It was more an ethnic thing than anything else, if they were Jews at all. And then the Pharisees, well, they hated all things Greek and Roman. They wanted to go back to the pure days of being a Jew. And what did it mean to love God for them? It was to obey Torah, to adhere to Torah, to the law of Moses as they understood it. That's what it meant to love God. So they, they don't even agree with the chief priests. And then we have the Sadducees, who are mostly priests. And so for them, loving God meant to adhere to the temple cult, to observe all of those festivals, to all those rituals that needed to be kept going. So amongst them, they couldn't agree. And we can see as Christians down through the last 2,000 years, we have really struggled to agree on how we love God. But then Jesus talks about the second command, which comes from Leviticus 19, love your neighbour as yourself. And I want to think about, we usually have an and in there. I mean, there is an and in the Greek. And we separate them out as two different commands. And we often talk about the first one as the most important and then the second one. But if we go back to the Beatitudes, if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, if we go back to how Jesus lived, I want to suggest that the word shouldn't be an and, but by. We love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind by loving our neighbour as ourself. Which is exactly what John says in one of his letters. If you can't love your neighbour, you, who you do see, how can you say you love God who you can't see? Love God by loving your neighbour. And by neighbour, well, I would suggest that Jesus means... Everyone, especially the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for God's justice, the pure in heart, the merciful, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for the sake of God's justice. The kingdom of God, the promised land for Jesus, is when all love God by 
loving all their neighbours as themselves. So here we are in the wilderness, which actually is where the church has really been for the last 2,000 years. We've just been a little reluctant to notice that it's not the best of places, and yet it is the best of places. So in the wilderness, who is this God that journeys with us? Whose are we? And as the people of God in our wilderness, as we journey from Egypt to the promised land, who are we? And finally, what is our understanding of the promised land? Where are we going? And in light of that, how are we invited to live that out? So I invite you to reflect on that as we watch one last video. So this is Martin Luther King's description of the promised land. And it's his very famous I Have a Dream speech. So there are a couple of fun facts about this. The first is, he was not the main speaker at this event. This is the first time he spoke to a large crowd. Up to this point, he had spoken in pretty small groups, Baptist churches and small crowds uh, in the various places where he was leading the strikes. And this was not part of his original scripted speech. But about halfway through a scripted speech, one of the singers who had sung during the thing had heard him preach somewhere else and called out from the stage, off to one side, tell us your dream. And he effectively put his scripted speech to one side and preached. And there is a, time, there is a really quite clear shift when he does that in how he delivers it. It's one of the most iconic speeches of the last century. It is seen as one of the three or four most important speeches in American history. Just happened. So as we think about our vision for the promised land, let's hear Martin Luther King's vision. 